You're listening to the Pitch Deck Podcast. All right, welcome to the Pitch Deck episode 29. Today is a bit of an anomaly. Uh, this is Matthew coming to you. And uh, Doug is out sick. Yeah, he is unable to record with his amazing voice that everybody loves and will be missing this week. However, you get to listen to me. Uh, today is probably going to be a pretty short episode. Um, we're going to do things a little bit on the fly. I have a bit of a plan and we're just going to run with it. Um, and of course, this being a flesh and blood podcast, it wouldn't be right if we did not acknowledge the three year anniversary of flesh and blood. That's right. Flesh and blood has been able to jump the hoop or go over the uh, hurdle of the two years it takes for new TCGs to die. I mean, Flesh and Blood is going strong. Flesh and Blood has survived COVID. The thing that killed everything. I mean, stores, restaurants, I mean, other trading card games just kind of died, fizzled out. Flesh and Blood stayed strong, and even though they started right at the beginning of it, they launched their game October 11th, 2019. That's right. Alpha came out three years ago, and Arcane Rising 1st Edition released right when the pandemic hit full swing in the U.S. in March, the very next year. And that's crazy to think about because, I mean, who was going to card stores to play any kind of games? I mean, this is flesh and blood, right? The game that they wanted to be played in the flesh and blood. However, the players are so passionate about this game. And this is before I got into it. That they played even over, over the internet. They played online. And uh, once things started to settle down, people, of course, were, uh, you know, gnawing to get back at it again. And Crucible of War released that same year in August. Of course, that introduced so much to the game. And it kind of uh, sort of set the spark, the stage for the next year, which would be essentially the year of Fab, in my opinion. Um, That was the year that it blew up right um and not to mention having the backing of uh rudy from alpha investments one of uh the largest platforms for magic the gathering on youtube um not that he was able to get a ton of people start playing it but i gotta imagine that there are a lot of people who would have never even heard of this game and were not for him and that's me well i'm one of those people personally um and i've always been a magic player for the last, I mean, as far as right now goes, 2022, uh, I started playing Magic back in 2015, I believe, uh, or 2014, 2014. So it's been eight years since I started playing Magic the Gathering, essentially. Um, and 
I never thought that I'd really get heavy into another card game. Right. And then I started seeing things about Flesh and Blood, Crucible of War releasing. I saw some box openings. I'm like, this game looks cool. Sure. It's not magic, though. No way I'd ever start playing it. Right. Uh, and then let's say around, I would say uh, around May or before May, because they started doing the spoilers for Monarch. I started watching some videos about the game in the spoiler season, and I I, I found out about DM Armada. And I was watching some of his videos. I'm like, wow, he's so passionate about this game. It makes me care about it, you know? And then the art, the sort of like shadow versus light imagery really got to me. And I'm like, wow, man, this game looks sick. Like, I would love to try it, but also, like, I don't want to spend a ton of money getting into a game I don't know if I'm going to like, you know? Um, but then, of course, the unlimited sets of, uh, WTR and Arcane Rising Arc came out, uh, I think that year around that time. Uh, and my store, my local game store, after I had mentioned it to them, like they should try to get into the game. I don't know if it was an issue with like trying to acquire first set, but they finally got unlimited, uh, of those two sets. And I saw they had Welcome the Wraith. So I'm like, you know what? Screw it. I'm just going to open a box and see what happens. You know, worst case scenario, I'll just sell the cards, right? You know, I may not have to like it. Spend a little money, whatever. So I opened a box of WTR, and that's never looked back. <laughs> uh, but it was funny because I didn't even play until after Monarch's release. I never actually got to play a real game of Flesh and Blood until I attended an armory after Monarch came out. Uh, and I had opened a couple of boxes actually after that, uh, before I played of Arcane Rising. And uh, I saw Viscerai, and Viscerai kind of like popped out to me. I mean, I love the curl, color purple, but I have I'm I'm a softy for edge lords and you know sort of like Arcana mixed damage sort of like uh, hexblade st style heroes and stuff. Um, so Viscerai sort of instantly sort of gra grasped me, especially when I opened the grasp of the Arknight in my first box. And a Command and Conquer in my second box. So I was, I was pre feeling pretty high on this game, you know, uh, having only opened like three boxes and being like, yeah, I got the nuts. Got Enlightened Strike in my first WCR box. I got the Legendary for Viscerai. I got Command and Conquer. Feeling good. Uh, you know, and then I threw together a quick deck and got my ass kicked at an armory <laughs> not too long after Monarch released. Uh, and, but it was a great experience. I, I met some cool guys who, you know, would later become some really good friends in the community of mine. And, um, you know, I, I've, I, I've may have told the story before on uh, the podcast, but it's just so, uh, amazing to me that, uh, flesh and blood has such a strong tight knit community of people. And I'm I want to say tight knit, right? Where people are very welcoming, you know, and um, it's not like magic where like a lot of people expect you to sort of get it, you know, like, oh, you don't get it. You're slow. You know, the game's new. So it invites a lot of people to come and learn and, you know, be come along for the ride. And I have met some of my best friends playing this game. Uh, and spent a lot of time hanging out with them, not just playing Flesh and Blood, but just socializing with them. So, you know, I understand the whole Flesh and Blood aspect of bringing people together. Um, and 
after that, I got to attend, you know, my first uh, competitive event at a road to nationals. And I didn't do too bad uh, after practicing a little bit with an OTK Viscerai deck and moving towards a more aggressive deck with very little practice. I kind of went three and four, which isn't the greatest, if I'm being honest. But hey, it was my first showing. And that's not too bad at all. I took down uh, two dashes and a, and a Shane. I mean, that seems pretty good. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, Flesh and Blood releases Crucible Unlimited. Uh, well, that was actually before. Uh, that was uh, after Crucible Unlimited came out. So that had been out. Um, and then Tales of Aria. You know, the by my big first dive into a set release that it, as it comes out, because prior to that, most sets kind of just already had were already out, and I never got a chance to kind of pre-release them, or they kind of just dropped like Crucible Unlimited, right? Um, so Tales of Our releases, and I go to the Calling in Orlando uh, Nationals. And I play in my first actual pro tournament, like the calling, and I go four and three. And I, for me, like that was, you know, a great experience being able to travel with some of my friends that I met playing the game, you know, and I didn't have to travel very far. Uh, and we spent a lot of time playing and hanging out and enjoying ourselves out there. Even if we didn't perform that well, you know, it was just a great experience being able to get out again to one of these big. GP style events like Magic Hat because I had been to a few of those before, uh, but Magic at this point had stopped doing that. Now Flesh and Blood is going strong. Tales of Aria is a massive hit, and Everfest comes out in February, which totally changes the landscape of the meta. And I mean, I could keep going about Everfest and the effect of Starvo, but you know, it's like the game is incredible. The game has done so much to revolutionize the trading card game world as far as like what they did with first and second edition, uh, first and limited editions, the cold foil process, uh, you know, the rarities of the fables, the promos that they do there. I mean, the just the just the organized play sector of this game, you know, beats most other games by leagues. I mean, Magic's organized thoughts of organized play is to give everybody a participation promo, non-foil common, and then put everything all the way hot top at the top, right? They don't even give playmats out to players anymore. They don't do, you know, cooled card treatments, right? Now they're doing extended art and textless cards, which is really cool. I'm actually happy they're doing that. But the overall support for the local scene on the on a weekly basis not just on a tournament basis for flesh and blood totally totally outdoes that of any other trading card game armory kit cold foil promos participation promos and not even to mention playmats that are given out not even on a performance level it's just given out based on whoever the card store owner deems worthy of being called the store championship the store, uh, the the people's champion, you know. Uh, sometimes some stores like to raffle them, right? Which is a good, nice, you know, fair way to do it. Um, and then some stores just kind of like, hey, you know, you participated in this tournament. You're a brand new player. You didn't do too hot, but hey, thanks for coming out and trying to play the game. We're gonna give you a playmat, and that happened to me too when we were playing during the Crucible, um, like pre Crucible Unlimited release. I got a Mangle playmat for going 0-4 at my first armory. 
So that was quite an experience. That was awesome. And I still have it and I cherish it today. Um, you know, and the game just does so much. LSS, James White, they've put so much work, so much passion into this project. You know, if James White or anyone at LSS, if you happen to be listening to this podcast, uh, the Pitch Stack podcast, hosted by Doug and Matthew, uh, we really love this game. Right. Um, we're so passionate about it. This game has kind of just changed my life. Not in, not in like in a revolutionary emotional way, but like, you know, it's like, hey, I've actually gotten to meet a lot of really cool people and I've gotten to travel a little bit, you know, playing the game um, and have some new, you know, rewarding competitive experiences, not just magic where you get kind of get sacked because you faced against your like bat, the bad deck, you know, you're the deck that just beats you, you know, you, Oh, uh, you know, living end just went, got there, you know, Oh, combo deck just got there. Oh, I drew bad. No lands, all lands, you know? So thank you for making a beautiful, the art, of course, is beautiful and such a well-crafted game, you know. And this year we got Uprising, which cut out, which was a start of Fatboy 2.0, and cut out the first and limited edition, joining them in a standard edition together, where everybody had these opportunities to get cold foils, marvels. Every box felt special, you know, and, and not every box. Of course, there's some crappy boxes out there. I've opened quite a few, but you know, there's always something special to be opened, and it makes collectors happy that there are some very limited print, not print runs, but limited um, availability or chances to open these things. And that uh, flesh and blood is very LSS is very transparent with their print runs, you know, and it helps collectors keep the game alive and it helps players play the game really cheap you know um uprising was a massive success fab 2.0 could not have launched better and now by the end of this year we will have dynasty and dynasty is looking to be amazing i know a lot of people are seeing these spoilers they feel like some of this stuff's a bit too niche but don't forget we are also getting pve Probably, as far as I understand, PVE is promised to be coming along with Dynasty. And if that if that's any indication, like by looking at these cards that have been spoiled so far, it's clear that these aren't necessarily the most competitive cards, but they are beautiful because they're marbled. But they probably, more than likely, will be extremely sought after for PVE players. And of course, it's important to, I think it's important to attract an, a casual crowd. I don't know if it's necessary, but for the games like longevity, I think it would be important for them to kind of capture that audience because not necessarily, not everyone necessarily wants to be a competitive grinder and go out to tournaments. But, you know, some people would just want to sit down and have a cool, fun game with some friends with the cards that they have and they own some, you know, fun experience like Commander, you know, and, Commander doesn't necessarily have to be the, you know, um, I want to, I don't want to say the the floor, right? Um, or like the 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 comparison, but something enjoyable, something casual, where there's not really like a anything on the line, you know, um, something like that is important for the game, and I think that's what this set is going to be looking to introduce. Uh, but I wouldn't not write off Dynasty just yet. 
every single supplemental set that we've gotten so far, Everfest and Crucible, has changed the game drastically as far as the meta goes. It shakes up every single competitive meta whenever they come out. Everfest changed a lot. And so did Crucible of War. So count on Dynasty. Whatever you think you know about this meta, throw it out the window. Dynasty's changing it. And that's why I'm trying to tell people, when you look at these cards and you analyze them, you cannot think about just... You shouldn't think... I mean, you can if you want to. Whatever. You will all find out sooner or later what the set looks like. But you probably should try to think about what should be coming with these products. Right? So... I'm excited about Dynasty. We already have some spoilers out. I don't want to really, really hash them here without Doug because I think we should get some, you know, head to head opinions and thoughts on these uh, cards. If you want to check out these spoilers, best place, best way to visualize these spoilers, fabrary.net. And they have a spoiler page perfect for it. Shows all the cards listed there in the Marvel, Marvel forms. And then they also have a schedule for what person personality or like twitter account or what youtube channel is going to be spoiling the next set of cards so go check that out so the last thing i have since this is sort of like flesh and blood's three-year anniversary week or month or something um well technically yesterday was flesh and blood's three-year anniversary so happy birthday um the last thing I want to discuss is something close and dear to my heart. And uh, it's very specific. It's Viscerized Legacy in this game. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this is the Viscerai episode, if you didn't get the memo. Uh, this is not the three anniversary episode. Sorry. Uh, this is the Viscerai episode. Uh, so, what I want to do here is sort of like. Look at Viscerai in the timeline of his life on in Flesh and Blood competitively, you know, and just in general, and just kind of like sort of put together a, a, a brief thesis of like what is what does it mean to play Viscerai, right? So like I never got a chance to play Viscerai during Arcane Rising, like with when it's just WTR and Arcane Rising. Uh, I didn't know what the deck looked like. Uh, I, I gotta imagine it ran some combination of like lead the charges so they can get some go agains going a lot of the one cost attacks and stuff. Uh, but I, I'm not going to sit and pretend like I know what it, what the deck looked like. Uh, I gotta imagine, obviously it's worse than what it was now. Uh, much better now, of course. Uh, but I can go far back enough to look at what it looked like after crucible of war. When Skeleta came out, right? And when Sonata Arcanics most especially came out, uh, the OTK deck with Sonata Arcanics, which was originally uh, brainchild by uh, Jason Chung, developer for Flesh and Blood. Uh, and that was one of the first videos I watched as a new player of this game. You know, um, and it amazed me because. This was a hero that I already was attracted to uh, to play, right? I love the hero style. His ability seems super cool. His weapon was badass. Uh, and then now I know he, ha- now I found out he has like a combo deck in this game, which I'm like, this game has combo decks? 
I thought this was just combat. What? So that blew my mind. And I, I built the deck, the defensive OTK deck, and had a lot of fun just building up rune chants and just sitting on like 30 rune chants and popping off. Right. Um, and it was fun to play. And then, of course, you know, uh, I eventually piloted the aggro deck into the Road to the Nationals. But playing, you know, an OTK sort of like build was always so much fun. And I always remember those days of kind of like popping off. Um, but, you know, Viserai as a whole, in my opinion, the philosophy behind playing him now, as, it, as he is now in the meta, is about flexibility. The ability and having the tools to adapt your game plan to react to your opponent, right? So, so the, the premise is like, you have a game plan, right? The game, that game plan is pitch a blue and deal as much damage as possible, right? Uh, that is usually very possible with the cost reduction card you have. You know, currently have Soaring Gloomvale and the two cost attacks when you have fewer cards to work with. Fewer ways to go wide, rather. So, you know, even lackluster hands with three cards in them can do a lot. Red Shrill, Mavrian. You go Mavrian's guys to give go again to your next Runeblade attack action on, on Hitmaker for those rune chants. You play your Shrill Skull form, making your rune chant on Viscerai and then getting it plus three. So now you've got a seven attack, go again, on hit, make one, two, or three rune chants, and you've got one on the back end. Of course, most players are not going to let you hit unless they got something much better to come back at you with, depending on the life totals. And then on top of that, not letting it hit or get demanding a, a number of cards out of their hand, you're going to come at them with Rosetta Thorn, which is... We'll get to that in a second. Come at them with Rosetta Thorn for that one remaining resource in your hand, uh, in your in your pool. Popping the rest of your rune chance, dealing two arcane damage, coming in for two physical. Split four damage for one at the little low cost of one resource and playing two different cards, which Viscerai is very good at because essentially you build this deck in a 30-30 split unless you're me and you love Arknight Shard so much you'd never pull it out of your deck. So you're playing a 29-30 split. Um, my philosophy on that 29-30, if you're playing Arknight Shard, um, I mean, you could, I guess, play 61 cards. I wouldn't do it, but I mean, I'm not opposed to it. My philosophy on that is that Rattle Bones is a card that allows you to grab attacks from your graveyard. And so it essentially is an attack while not being an attack if you catch my drift. So I go with the 29 attacks, 30 non-attacks. Because effectively, that number sort of balances out. So back on topic, Rosetta Thorn coming in for a lot of damage. And my stance on Rosetta Thorn is that it's a crutch. And what, the, what I mean is that um, it's really easy to see the line, not the lines, but it's really easy to see the, uh, the curve sort of of your deck. With your blues, your two costs mega attack. Your not not say mega attacks. Your your two costs like big attacks with the two costs um, and like your shrills essentially your spellblade assaults on your Morgid turns or just spellblade assaults in general when you're pushing arcane damage. 
if you're playing the Reeks, which kind of suck in my opinion, I kind of tried them out. Not a big fan. Uh, they just it doesn't do enough. Um, but it balances out really well with Rosetta because you're always got one resource re- one resource left over. Even if you're playing a Rattlebones for two, you've got one resource left over. So essentially, I think it's a crutch. Now, if Nebula Blade was legal, the deck absolutely would have to change, and I don't know if Shrills even make the final cut. I really love Red Shrills to death, but it feels so hard to justify running it in a deck that has Nebula Blade, because Nebula Blade is a two-cost attack with a weapon. But what's good about Nebula Blade is that its condition is uh, not as stringent. Its condition is uh, more forgiving in that you only need to cast a non-attack action to get the plus three. And on top of that, it'll produce a rune chant at the end of the swing if it hits, which it's for physical. Uh, It does present a meaningful on hit, but it's not quite Rosetta Thor. Right. It made it very, very easy to get in those cheap kills with Rosetta Thorn because the two arcane damage and usually people go one AB against Viserai. It's meaningless to really go to ab unless you're like a guardian and you can afford to try to like force a creeper's break but i think it's kind of like yeah you're going ab one for most decks and ab two for certain decks that can afford to um or if you're just playing wizard because you've got ab two in your boots uh and so you know rosetta thorn if it goes you know it, it will affect viscerai but I think he will manage to pull himself back up. Briar eventually is going to attain those last few living legend points. It's inevitable. I mean, I know Icelander and Ulton right now are killing it, but it's not going to last forever. Um, Briar will have to eventually leave the format, and I'll be glad when she does. Uh, less rune blades, the better. And uh, you know, some people like the some people say that this ride really isn't uh isn't fit to stay competitively viable in a format with a lot of control, but I disagree. Um, right As it stands right now, the the ceiling and the floor for Viscerai is this is the deck's like this is the deck selling point is that the ceiling and the floor are really close to each other. They're not that far. The floor is like 15 damage. For uh, I'm I'm exaggerating a bit, but you know, like I said earlier, Shrill, Rosetta. Shrill presents seven plus one with the rune chant made on the end, eight plus four more, that's twelve. And if Shrill hits, that's fifteen. So that's two to 15, twelve to fifteen damage floor. The ceiling is like damn near forty. Um, you'd have to have the perfect setup for that to even occur. But I've done it. So um, I've lived Magic Christmas Land before. It doesn't happen a lot. But the floor for this ride is pretty damn high. Um, and of course, it's not like Briar where you can have these insane, insane Force of Nature turns that just go off, or Shane, who just snowballs out of control by the end game. But Viscerai is a deck that's pretty consistent. And that's another great, like, selling point to it is like become the Arknight and it's not our Arcanics 
if you're playing like certain build, the, the main builds of the deck will usually run Sonar Arcanics. They help your consistency so much, especially when you play by the 30 30 rule in building your deck. Um, it's so hard to miss. It happens. It happens to the best of us. You know, it's rough, but you know, that's why you just don't play Tome of the Arcanine anymore because it's a, it's, it's a really, really damn strong card. But when it misses, my God, does it miss? It feels so bad. It might see, you know, in my opinion, it might see a home in the deck uh, once Rosetta gets banned. Because, you know, in a bad situation, like a feel-bad scenario, you play Tome of the Arc Knight in a non-attack hand, and you miss, right? Now you've got Rosetta to rely on with no benefit. No arcane damage, no root chance, right? But you have two resources left in a post-Rosetta situation. Nebula Blade is there, coming in for four damage, and if you don't, if you let it hit, sets up a rune chant for the next turn. So, you know, that's, that's what I'm saying. You know, you have to analyze the cards based on how the deck's built now. I don't think Tome of the uh, Arc Knight's good, uh, currently. It's just so gambly, right? Um, I played it a little bit during ProQuest Season 2, because I was kind of just trying to trying out another guy's John Ho's deck list. Uh, he performed pretty well in Nats, if I'm not mistaken. He got uh, pretty high, actually. I don't know if he made top eight or not. Uh, anyways, uh, you know, that's a, another really good Visar player I rely on uh, to look at, you know, just good strategy, deck lists, uh, numbers and stuff. But, you know, the deck has flexibility in so many places and those are some of the cards that give it to you become the arc knight just lets you fix hands at the cost of a card so it lets you just reduce get rid of a card and go find the thing you need and sometimes it doesn't even it, the getting rid of the card is not even a negative effect you're just carding a swarming gloom veil and you're gonna go grab a uh you go grab a rattle bones rattle bones now can go grab your swarming gloom veil I mean, those are plays. Those are real plays that happen. Um, and that consistency is really what keeps his, his floor high. His adaptability. And whenever your opponent is presenting a situation to you, you adapt to that. Are they presenting a good... Let's say your hand has a... You know, a, let's say you have a four-card hand, no arsenal, right? Say your opponent goes... And presents to you like 15 damage. So it's not great. Uh, that's a lot of damage. And your hand can deal about 12 damage. Um, if you if you got if you had three card, three of those cards, you know. So you had uh, uh, a shrill Mavrian blue. And you had a Mortitide in your hand as well. So you're like, okay, so if I keep my whole hand, I take this 15, and then I play Mordred, Mavrian, Shrill. Uh, I'm presenting an additional like four damage because I played Mordred Tide. So let's say you get like 15 to 16 damage threatened on that turn. Um, I would probably take the damage, Arsenal that Mordred Tide, and then play the other three cards out. Right? Mordred Tide is one of those combo cards where it's just like this is your the th that's your bread and butter. Right? Mordred Tide is the key to the deck success. Visrai's ability and Morja Tide are essentially what drive his power 
through the roof. So you never want to just jam it out there because you got it, right? Because making four rune chants with a Morgatide is usually not that great. You want to kind of be in the six territory and out, right? When you're playing multiple cards that make rune chants, or you're playing effects that have rune chant creation, like your Spellblade cards and your Revel in Runeblood, and your Mavri and On Hit triggers. So those are the turns you want to keep that around for. Not just like Mordred, Shrill, or Mordred like Swarming Rosetta. Like, that's okay. If that's all you got and it's late game, you're trying to push damage, you run it, right? You do that. Um, but when you're setting up for like larger turns, you are not trying to push that card in. Like, you're not trying to actually play that card and then reduce its p- potency. It's not really going to benefit you. Um, and this isn't even to mention Creeper's usage playing Viserai. So, you know, Creeper's totally changed the landscape of playing Viserai and turned them from like a, I don't know, I would say like a, a, B, a C plus deck to like an A plus. Um, and Creeper's, learning how to play with Creeper's is a whole nother topic. Um, you know, I could begin to dive into, but you know, and I think it would take another 15 minutes to even begin to start discussing creepers. But essentially, you can give double go again. You can get some cheeky plays in. There's extra action points. The same way you play Rattlebones, it's a lot of things you can do with creepers that extend, extend your game plan. So, you know, essentially, what Viserai boils down to is an aggro deck that usually does not want to block ever because the damage he presents far outweighs most other decks' damage output. Now, of course, playing into control, you can't help a lot of things. You have to, you have to mitigate damage, right? Because you're going to get hit with Crippling Crush and you're going to lose your potency for your turn. You're just not going to be able to do much, right? That's where sideboard comes in. Hopefully you get your unmovable or your sync bullet ready to defend that attack. And then hopefully get some good, decent turn attack in and then arsenal a card for another turn. Um, you're very weak to that kind of disruption. And especially Frostbites from the Ice Heroes because your curve for your deck is pretty is pretty thin. It's like razor thin. You you really don't have more than you have than you can work with. Than you're able to work with, right? Um, and you know, before Skeleta got banned, you know, it might have been easier for you to deal with that. But because Skeleta got banned, now these frostbites are sometimes a headache. And you really have to deal with the with how that goes down. Um so that's why he struggles a little bit in the current meta, but he's doing really well. Uh, he's still an A-list hero, in my opinion. Um, you know, and there are some ways to play around those frostbites if your opponents aren't playing efficiently. Assuming your opponent is like the nuttiest Icelander player, you're probably screwed. But if they're not, you might have an alright time. You might be able to get by. Um... And that's why it matters so much about skill level and experience with your deck. And playing Viscerai reps over and over, you start to learn. You start to learn the lines. You start to learn your outs, the cards that you have, right? 
and the best, most optimal way to use them. Because sometimes keeping trying to force your creepers to stay up isn't always the best plan. Sometimes not blocking with your creepers isn't the greatest plan either. And sometimes even just using it at certain points in the game or before certain points in the game isn't really great. Um, or after certain points, I guess. The, it, it varies. Um, so I think what's going to be most important moving forward into Dynasty is going to be the post-Rosetta of this world, right? Uh, and the future Runeblade specs. Because when Briar leaves, we lose Rosetta Thorn. And now that Dynasty is coming out, we have new cards to look forward to. There's absolutely going to be new common Runeblade cards and hopefully new, you know, Majestics. And we've already seen one new equipment, the Helmet. And that's kind of just more like a sideboard card. Um, I won't discuss it too much here. Uh, but that tiara looks pretty sweet. The art's amazing, and I'm really looking forward to getting Marvel of that, uh, that card. So, but as far as like our future specs go on Runeblade, um, I'm not really sure what we're gonna need. I think that they, I hope that Dynasty will introduce some more uh, options for cost reduced attacks and one cost attacks or some non attack actions to really, uh, I don't know, maybe I want to say change the deck up, but like to try to give us some new ideas, right? Because the Mavrian Shrill plan is sort of like not stale, but it's like, you know, it's kind of bread and butter ish right now at this point. And it'd be interesting to see a change in like the way Visrike can be built or played. Because as far as it goes right now, you're always playing a 30 30 split, you're playing your Sonatas, become the Arknights, a one or two Dread Triptiches. Just for the the blue, you're playing three vexings. Most of the deck lists don't change that much. They vary mostly in just the quantities of certain cards and sideboard, right? You know, some decks might be playing fewer shrills, or some decks are playing the belittle package with the minnowism. I'm not a big fan. I know it's okay. It it's good into the ice deck. I'm still not a big fan of it. Um, but that's what I'm hoping is that this next set will change things up make our matchup into ice a lot better. Uh, and I don't know, just generally give us something new, right? And, and and that goes for all the other heroes too. Uh, I would love to see something more interesting going on with the elements rather than just Tales of Aria cards. It'd be cool if they introduced new element elemental cards or element cards uh, that go along with the other heroes that exist. So uh, that will be interesting and fun to see. Um, but again, do not, do not look Nebula Blade down, no, or do not look down on Nebula Blade, because soon enough, we're going to have to start using it. And, uh, it's going to be interesting. That's about what I can say for that. So, uh, thanks for listening to re me ramble about Viserai, um, and happy third anniversary, Flesh and Blood. So thank you for listening to the flesh, <laughs> the flesh and blood. Thank you to, for listening to the pitch stack podcast. And we will catch you next week and discuss hopefully some more dynasty spoilers, hopefully some more rune blade cards. And that'll be a blast. Have a good one.